Coming to you on location from Washington, D.C. at Outright D.C., the annual conference for LGBTQ plus writers and readers. I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece. And you're listening to Lit Pop Bang. Hi, everyone. We have a very special episode for you today. Yeah, so like I mentioned, we're on location from Outright DC. Um, we're in- going to interview and introduce and have a little reading from Michelle T. So yep. the audio is going to be a bit different today. We're going to jump to a session we recorded with her um, in with a big audience, like a conference session. There'll be some Q&A there. And you'll jump back with us here in the green room. And me, Cece, and Michelle will talk through pop and bang, and bang. portion of the podcast. So thanks for listening and stay tuned. We hope you enjoy. Friends, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. I have the distinct pleasure this afternoon to introduce a writer whose work I truly cherish, Michelle T. To our straight to the point, Michelle T has become an icon, so much so that it's hard to pin down all of the scenes in which she has become iconic. Her published work, spanning over 20 years, has long displayed autonomy and independence at its core without ignoring the power of community in our lives. In that way, She has come to represent a sort of feminism that insists on the freedom to both thrive and to fuck up, to become iconic, to become an addict, to get sober, to tour the country on a shoestring budget, to write, to edit, to talk, to publish on her own terms, and to find sisterhood anywhere in the world, which is iconically feminist. Her work is also undeniably punk, both in that it transcribes a living history of punk, of course, but also in that it takes no shit and insists on a DIY ethic in her confessionalism, in her style of reportage, in the life she's lived, and the way she has kept her foot in the door for fellow women, queer people of all genders, and working class folks. She's work is queer, foremost in that it resists definition, followed closely by the fact that it dives headfirst into queer love and queer sex. Michelle is a poet, she's a memoirist, she writes about the world ending in both literal and figurative ways, and she resists definition. Her work simply ignores the arbitrary lines drawn around genre in the queerest of ways, while at the same time always acknowledging that there is more to learn, different ways of understanding the world, the self, the body, love. And it is working class. T's writing acknowledges its roots in a way that is wholly honest, that acknowledges how much it sucks to be broke or addicted, yet without being preachy, without pretending that something isn't gained through going through the meat grinder of life and coming out the other end with both experience and scars worth telling stories about. In her latest work, Against Memoir, Michelle explores all of these aspects of her life and her writing in a book that navigates numerous subgenres of nonfiction writing, reviews of bands and movies, speeches she's given, immersive reportage, almost forgotten histories, manifestos, and yes, at times, pieces that look very much like memoir. It's all packed together in Against Memoir. One of my favorite pieces from the book, a piece that made its rounds on its own before being included here, does a beautiful job representing the intersection her writing has found itself at. It's queer and punk and feminist and working class, and I get the sense that it means a whole lot to the people who have read it. I know it means a whole lot to me. This is a small excerpt from Pigeon Manifesto, first published in Word Warriors and included in Against Memoir. The revolution will be at your curb, in the shallow pool of shade that is your gutter. The revolution will begin with the pigeon bobbing, hungry, in the street, 
It is now your job to love her. It is now your job not to avert your eyes from her feet. Your job to seek out and find the one pigeon foot that is blobbed in a chemical melt, a pink orange glob, a wad of bubblegum. The pigeon splashed in a pool of chemicals laid out to kill it because so many of the people hate pigeons. This is now why you must love them. We must love the nature that does not make it on the Discovery Channel, on Animal Planet. We must love the nature that crawls up to our doorstep like spare changers and scares us with the thickness of its feathers, its mutant feet and orange eyes. Pigeons, queer folk of all genders, comrades, please help me welcome Michelle T. It's an honor to be here. Um, thank you so much, Dave, for bringing me, and Bobby for helping, and everybody who helped, because it's a whole festival. So I imagine a lot of people uh, made this possible. Um, I'm going to read from my book against memoir. I'm going to read from a piece called Hags in Your Face that I spoke a little bit about today at the trauma panel. And um, I've been slowly on a, my tours for this book, like slowly reading it, the whole piece. It's very long, kind of city by city. So back at the beginning. Um, Hats in your face. Throughout the majority of the 1990s, my evenings were split between working at a nonprofit call center where I bummed money off strangers for good causes and getting drunk and dancing at any of San Francisco's queer punk clubs. I didn't know the town was a hotbed of these two particular and generally separate subcultures, queer and punk, and I didn't know how badly I needed this particular hybrid in order to discover myself in my entirety. But when I walked into a club called Junk, um, at a, formerly at a gay club called Paula's Clubhouse, it was like I had walked into my own best-case scenario of life. Up in the DJ booth, a scrawny punk with a bright blue mohawk spun Nina Hagen. Soon enough, she would be my girlfriend, but that night I made out with a different girl entirely, when the centrifugal force of a broken mosh circle sent us flying into one another. I never saw her again, but no worry. The Mission District in the 90s was a promenade of fierce young dykes, each more shorn, more intriguingly pierced, more gender ambiguous than the last. Reigning over all, at least to my starstruck eyes, were a motley crew of surly 20-somethings resembling Peter Pan's lost boys, if the lost boys were girls, the sort of girls who look like the sort of boys who might break a beer bottle over your head at the club. <laughs> Youthful and sweet-cheeked, their tender faces topped with hair matted into dreadlocks with spray adhesive, or glued into a mohawk plank, or dyed black as coal, and worn to the waist, not in the way of a maiden, but in the way of, like, Lemmy from Motorhead. I'm talking about the hags, and if you were alive in the mission during this era, you saw their tags everywhere, at bus stops and in bar bathrooms, on phone booths and brick walls, hags SF, hags in your face, in a black sharpie scrawl. You knew a hag was a hag because they moved in a pack, as all wild animals do, and the backs of their motorcycle jackets and denim vests all proclaimed their affiliation, hags. More than the presence of a women-only bathhouse soaking with lesbians, more than the women's bookstore selling Dorothy Allison novels and feminist newsletters, even more than the bearded lady, the dyke cafe that hosted late night art events attended by Kathy Acker, the hags were evidence of the mad freedom to be found in San Francisco. Yes, the city was still plagued by fag bashings and other anti-queer hate crimes, but if this was the place this group of magnificent and terrifying dykes thought best to call home, it was where I wanted to call home too. The hags were formed by Tracy Thomas, a queer Colorado punk who followed her band, Feminine Deodorant Spray, to the Bay Area at the start of the decade. A photo from the era shows Thomas posing before what looks like a fuzzy zebra-striped wall. 
Her mohawk is as stiff as plastic, her denim vest covered in studs. She wears a bullet belt and a Misfits t-shirt and a handkerchief knotted around her neck. There's a tattoo on her forearm, and her head is slightly tilted as she looks warily into the camera. She seems to be trying to radiate classic outlaw toughness while simultaneously wondering if the photographer is going to kick her ass. Sometime after this photograph was taken, Thomas was grieving a breakup by flinging plates out the window of a friend's fourth floor apartment down by Fisherman's Wharf, as you do. She was not alone. I had a couple of friends who were like, let's hang out and support each other, and it was a kind of tough get your energy out, girl support togetherness thing. The inspiration to codify the energy struck Thomas. Influenced by filmmaker and misfit icon John Waters, Cookie Mueller and the Girl Gangs, Divine strutting around beating people up and rolling people. She dubbed her posse the Hags after the auteur's obscure black and white film, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. The Hags' primary activity, and this remained constant throughout their existence, was roaming in a protective pack around San Francisco, getting drunk, going to punk shows, and committing the light vandalism known as tagging, leaving your gang's name or your own aimed somewhere it shouldn't be. We'd spray paint all over the city, Thomas recalls. I remember we spray painted this van, and it turns out it was the Breeders, and they wrote the song Hag about it. <laughs> Indeed, the lyrics begin, Hag, coastal cutthroat, and a bit further down, Kim Deal's speech sings, you're just like a woman, Hag. In the lost country of the 1990s, where such a dirty switch is everything right, Hags seemed to rule by an almost cosmic decree. We would climb over fences at night and hop into public swimming pools, I'm like, where was there ever a public swimming pool in San Francisco to hop into? Like, I should have figured that out. And drink beer and be this girl unit. Like the alluringly bad boys of my youth, only girls. Like the outsiders come to life, the teenage girl who wrote them into existence now showing all the way through. Just being a lesbian in this world, you're going to have somebody messing with you, or even just being a woman. There was a lot of fag bashing going on in San Francisco, so we would take to the streets and walk. And it was like we were an entity, like, you're not going to do this type of thing to us. When the hacks began, it was five dykes. One of them was Johanna Lee, with her short, her shorn red hair and nerd glasses. She rode her motorcycle up to Alaska and made scathingly perverse comics, lampooning both the dyke culture that was her home and the Christian values of the abusive family she had left behind. Like everyone in the hags, she was young, in her 20s. It was Johanna who tagged in a hag member by painting the back of everyone's denim and leather jackets. Each time someone got tagged in, Johanna would take acrylic paint and draw that person on the back of our jackets. The jackets had hags on the back, and then there were little stick figures, which makes me think of those like weird suburban family jackets. Like, like, but like with these like crazy dykes. Another original hag was Stacy Quijas. Originally from Colorado, she too was running from an abusive family. She quit school after eighth grade and had been on her own since age 14. Quijas wore her hair long under a backward baseball hat or up in a massive mohawk. From her nose dangled a ring like a baby bull. Her legs were famous. On the back of each calf sat one half of the L7 logo, each a skeletal green hand making an L or a 7. There is no overplaying the importance music had for the hags, in particular girl bands who shredded and killed and murdered as hard as dudes, bands like the Luna Chicks and Seven Year Bitch, Tribe 8 and Malibu Barbie. The all-female grunge metal punk L7 was Quijas' favorite, and a photo of her tribute tattoo graced the cover of the Pretend We're Dead single. It's also how Quijas met Kelly Kegger. Green mohawk, leather jacket, combat boots, spikes, piercings, rings, covered in tattoos, tiny, loud, in your face, laughing, crying, yelling, stoic, tough, pretty, kind, selfish, selfless, selfish, self-conscious, 
insecure, obsessed, girl-crazy, loyal, chaotic, serene, supportive, judgmental, rude, accepting, but most of all, wild, as in untamed, dangerous, mind-blowing. That's Toby Vale, founding member of Bikini, Bikini Kill, the person who literally put the girl in Riot Girl. <laughs> she spent a season on the road with Quijas, who had acted as the band's roadie during a tour in 1992. They had all met a bit earlier through the networks that bring bands cross-country and into Congress with other bands, crashing on floors, giving lifts to transient fans. The tour stopped at Jabberjaw, a coffee shop come music venue that had hosted all-ages shows for the likes of Nirvana and Elliot Smith. In attendance was a 19-year-old metalhead from Torrance named Kelly. Now a man, back then Kelly was a dyke, into metal, sporting super long dyed black hair. Recently out of high school with no plans for college, not much going on, a loner, she'd come to the Bikini Kill show out of desperation for some sort of counterculture that got close to her queer punk self. Oh, your legs are on the record, she said to the band's roadie. We were standing out front and me and her started talking about music. I had a little Honda Civic. We went out to my car, I had all these cassette tapes. We were listening to songs, metal songs, like this old demo from Metallica and Corrosion of Conformity. We were listening to the band Born Against and Rorschach, and she was like, oh yeah, I like this music. I'm not into Bikini Kill, I'm just touring with them. She said that I'd like San Francisco. A few months later, Kelly packed up her Honda Civic and set off for San Francisco with $3,000 she'd gotten in a car accident settlement. That was like a million dollars back then, she says. <laughs> she arrived in town without knowing a single person, located a place to live by word of mouth, and found her way into the mission's growing queer subculture by showing up at the Bearded Lady and Junk. I remember walking in there and everyone was into SM. Everyone was like bald and just like leather. And people were having sex out in the open, like everything was a sex party. I was like, whoa, this is a total Judas Priest song. This is wild. <laughs> Appreciative of the spectacle, the young queer did not swing in that particular direction. It was often clueless when being hit on by racy lesbians. They were like, what are you into? And I was like, well, I like Italian race bikes, music, I'm really into metal. And they were like, but really, what are you into? And I liked Pepsi and espresso. <laughs> I'd get an espresso over ice and then pour Pepsi in it. And they were like, whatever, this guy is useless. <laughs> the night wasn't a total bust. Weejus was also at the club that night, and the two reunited. Later, she took Kelly to meet the hags at a house party following a lunatics show. They had hags written on their jackets, Kelly recalls. It was just all these crazy fucking dykes that weren't into kumbaya music, you know what I mean? For Kelly, it was a revelation. I tried to be gay in Los Angeles, and it just wasn't working out. It was like Farrah Fawcett dykes hanging out of the palms. The South Bay punk scene with Black Flag was Black Flag, Circle Jerks, just dudes. But then when I met the hags, they were into music and going to shows. We didn't just go to queer shows. We went to straight shows, too. None of us were mousy at all. If some dude was going to fuck with us, we'd fight right back with them. It wasn't only the macho landscape of punk rock that held potential brawls. Anti-queer violence could pop up on a minibus, as it did when a man spit in a fellow hack's face and called them both crazy dykes. They knocked him onto the floor of the bus and kicked him until the driver threw them off. Then, high on adrenaline, they lit up cigarettes and got kicked off another bus for smoking. <laughs> it's hard to think about being proud of that, being this person who fucked shit up all the time. But that's a thought conjured from the comfort of 2016. Although San Francisco had become a safe haven for queers, had been a safe haven for queers since World War I, when the military began dumping their blue discharges, gay soldiers, at its port, inadvertently creating a gay community. There have always been violent bigots in the city, as seen from the recent murder of the popular transgender DJ Bubbles, who was gunned down near a record store she worked at in the Tenderloin, or the fatal bashing of radical fairy Feather Lynn in Placid DeVos Park in 2014. 
Queer people are never safe, and in the 1990s, that knowledge was acute. I recall driving by Estenoche, the city's first Latinx gay bar, and seeing a patron getting walloped with a two-by-four on the street outside. I spent the night leaving hysterical messages on the answering machine of various nonprofits. It hadn't occurred to me to call the police. Police weren't friends of queers. Like the hags and most other queer females, I lived in the Mission, not yet a neighborhood of innovating restaurants and boutiques selling $1,000 retro sound systems. The Mission in the 90s was the neighborhood that folks from the rest of the city were too scared to come to. Much of that was simple racism. The Mission is the city's Latinx neighborhood. But it was really the city's impoverished Latinx neighborhood. And the tension of white queers, the first wave of gentrification, added to the friction of a place already contending with gang activity, a brisk street market of drugs, and sex for sale nightly. Packs of inebriated and aimless young men raised in the American culture of homophobia roamed this gay city. My best friend was assaulted when a man ran out from the Valencia Gardens housing projects and clobbered him on the head. A gang of bicycle thieves jumped out at me as I rode home from work on Mission Street one night, almost knocking me off my seat as they seized my rear tire and proclaimed my bike to be theirs. I fought them off with wit and outrage, tools I also used to scare off the single men and packs of boys who harassed me as I made my way home, though I was, on occasion, inspired to use my purse as a weapon, when the advances were especially relentless. Once when my girlfriend and I were held up at gunpoint at a bus shelter on the corner of 16th and Mission, I dissuaded our attacker with tales of our poverty and an offer of beer from the six-pack I was carrying. This was the landscape the hags gathered in. Though they were not consciously gathering for self-protection, they understood, as we all did, that us broke female queers may be called upon to protect ourselves at any minute, and the safety of numbers was always more effective than a pocketbook. Silas Howard directs for film and television now, but in the 90s he ran the Bearded Lady Cafe, and as the bass player for Tribe 8 was the focus of much hag adoration. The city was much more violent, he remembers. I got a gun pulled on me several times. Harry, the bearded lady's co-owner, got gay bashed at a taqueria on 24th Street. There were way more neo-Nazis going into the punk scene. All of that tension was on the surface. We were at war. It felt like that. At war in the streets of our neighborhood, as well as in the culture at large, where Senator Jesse Helms famously called us degenerates, weak, morally sick wretches, and was backed up by Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, who compared queerness to alcoholism and Bill Clinton, who we thought maybe liked us or something, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act. I believe marriage is an institution for the union of a man and a woman, he stated. For a certain segment of the queer population, the answer to such hostility was not to be respectable, to continue working to convince these bigots we were just like them, but to become the degenerate beasts they accused us of being, to take delight in our monstrous power, to say fuck you and goodbye to the possibility of living a normal life in this culture. Enter the hags. Mario Taylor is a sober 40-something queer female with beachy blonde waves who is frequently accompanied by a pack of dogs. In the 1990s, she was a drunk 20-something with jet black hair and silver piercing jewelry that arced from her chin like little fangs. The abstract black tattoos that spill down her body like ink are still there. The city she inhabited is not. It was a different San Francisco, she remembers. Not a day went by that I wasn't verbally or physically bashed. I remember riding my bike as I stopped at a gas station to put air in my tires, and a carload of dudes came up. Then a second car came up, and they were there to bash on me, too. Taylor purchased a gun, choosing a semi-automatic 9mm over a 38 or 44 because it held significantly more bullets per clip, enough to take out a carload of dudes. Taylor had been in the same punk orbit as the hags, thrashing around at the same clubs and performing on stage with Tribe 8 while the gang moshed in the front row. The responsibility of gun ownership spurred her to become sober, taking her out of the hag's orbit and into recovery. 
The people who were sober had this light in their eyes, and the hags were great, but I had this really sick feeling in my stomach, like it was the dark path. It was the time before they got super strung out. It was a gut thing. Tracy Thomas worked things out with the long-distance lover who had inspired her to fling plates out of the window. She moved to New York, starting a hags chapter in the city, and attempting to control the San Francisco chapter from afar, having final approval over who was allowed to have the hags tag on the back of their jackets. It wasn't happening. After I left, they were making everyone a hag. It turned into chaos, and everyone was on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, a teenage dyke on the run from the self-defying environs of Monroe, Louisiana, was hanging out in Boston, Texas, with a fake ID. Kids in junior high had named her Joan for her shaggy hair and Joan Jet t-shirts. She modified it to Joan of Anarchy, her tag. When Bikini Kill played a dive bar in her town, a dive bar in town, Joan showed up with her phony identification, and like Kelly before her, noticed the L7 tattoos on their roadie's legs. I was just taken aback because there were no other dykes like me. She was the first punk rock type dyke I ever met. I was really taken with her. I wished I could just go with her wherever she went. Soon enough, Joan would. She caught a ride to Seattle for a bit, then hitchhiked down to San Francisco for an anarchist fair. Homeless, she met up with other gutter punks crashing in the streets of the city and found her way to Church Street Studios, a rehearsal space in the Tenderloin that had become infamous for the amount of debauchery taking place within its warrants. It was actually kind of like a big headquarters for crystal meth. Joan fell in with a member of Tribe 8 who'd been ejected from the band for her drug use. The musician was shacking up with a drug dealing hag in a practice space. When Joan pointed out a bag of meth that had slipped from the dealer's stash, she earned the hag's trust and began working as an apprentice of sorts. A guy would come over and sell us eight balls and we'd take it and bag it for resale. I was the watchdog, I guess. I made sure people didn't rip her off. In return for her duties, Joan was permitted to crash at the practice space and gifted with free drugs. Joan's heart was outfitted with a pacemaker, making all drugs, but speed in particular, a poor choice of recreation, even for a gutter punk. But Joan was under the illusion she had about two years to live. Back home in Monroe, Louisiana, hepatitis B had broken out at the cafe she worked at. A blood test came up negative, so she received a vaccination. When the cafe's insurance company later requested their own blood test, the antibodies from the vaccine created a false positive. Mistakenly believing she had two years to live, Joan abandoned her college enrollment and hit the road. I was living on the street doing drugs. I wasn't worrying about it because I was like, I want to do what I want to do because I thought I was going to die tomorrow. A visit to Larkin Street, the tenderloin clinic that cares for homeless youth, eventually verified that Joan was free of hepatitis B, but by then she was living a certain life. It took Joan a minute to prove herself worthy of hagdom. They were very selective about who they let into that circle. Joan, now Johnny Ray, recalls from his comparatively sedate life in Vallejo, California. I think it was because of that strong love they had for each other. They were looking for their sisters from another mother. At a punk festival in Portland, Oregon, Joan spent the day with the hags, but come nightfall, they told her to buzz off. I didn't want to seem like it bothered me, but I was curious. A single kindly hag stayed behind with Joan, and the pair ran around Portland doing drugs, eventually coming to rest in a dumpster. It had potato sack bags in it, like the old kind you used to play with in school. We said, fuck it, let's sleep in here. So we slept in the dumpster with potato sack bags. Joan sank back up with the gang at the festival the following day, drunk and high and skanking in a circle pit. She noticed some neo-Nazis skanking alongside her. I didn't like skinheads much, and I started beating on them in the pit. The bodyguards working the event had to separate us. They were about to kick me out. Joan was rescued by Becky Slang, a hag who vouched for her and promised to help her cool down. Becky made a date with Joan to kick skinheads at punk shows when they got back to San Francisco. And after that, I was a hag, I guess. It was Slane who eventually tagged Joan to the gang, painting hags on the back of her jacket. 
Maybe Becky felt for Joan because her own hagness had been contested by none other than Tracy Thomas, now referred to as Scramma by the gang she left behind. <laughs> she was a figurehead, Becky recalls, in her sunny kitchen in Los Angeles, a figurehead that did carry some weight. She had to give her blessing or it wasn't official. I remember this 45-minute phone call to New York, and this was at a point in time when you actually had to pay for long distance. We didn't have any money. It was kind of a big deal. Truthfully, Becky was a little suburban in comparison to her gang mates. She hadn't grown up in foster care, hadn't been a teenage runaway, hadn't suffered extreme sexual abuse at the hands of her family. Her music taste was a bit off. She embraced sissy bands, such as Babes in Toyland and Hole. Her mom even provided her with money. Never more than $10, she recalled. I, I get $7 in the mail sometimes. Still, it wasn't the cash. It was the presence of an actual family of origin who actually cared about your well-being that set Becky apart from the rest of the gang. Everyone else's family had been split apart by homophobia or abuse or addiction or all of the above. And yet, Becky got her ass kicked by a couple of mulleted softball lesbians for tagging hags in the Castro and was a leader in intense drug use. So as far as the gang was concerned, she was in, regardless of Scramma's ruling. I shot speed. I blew out veins inside my arm like they were starting to leak because it's very caustic. If it gets in your soft tissue, like if you miss or something like that happens, it is incredibly painful. Like most addicts, she didn't go to the hospital. Like most addicts, she kept on using for a while. Fiverr came from Ohio, the middle kid of a big Catholic family. When she was 12 years old, her mother up and left, no warning, no contact. For a while, Fiverr was raised by her father, a biker who parked his motorcycle in the kitchen, taught Fiverr how to play the guitar, and may or may not have struggled with his own inebriations. When it got to be too much, the kids were split up into foster homes. Fiverr actually got a good one. She grew close to her two foster brothers, and particularly younger one. Says Karina Gia, a poet who was in love with Fiverr during their 20s, they actually gave her a lot of stability. She really liked them a lot. At some point, the two brothers were messing around with the rifle. The older brother shot the younger one in the head. It was an accident, a mistake. It was Fiverr who found the boy, already gone. After, she lived briefly with her mother, but that didn't work. After that, she was on her own. She made her way to California, like so many lost and restless queer people, queer girls especially, drawn to the Bay Area as if a pulsing magnetic stone were lodged beneath the water there. It makes sense that Fiverr found her way to Berkeley to the university, even if she wasn't a student. She made it through a few years of college back in Ohio as an English major and had wanted to be a writer. She loved Kurt Vonnegut and was obsessed with Jean Genet, in particular Our Lady of the Flowers. But her primary occupation at Berkeley was getting wasted and hanging around the co-ops, the university's alternate dorms, each with their own personality. Karina began at La Florian, the vegetarian one, and made her way to Barrington, the more rebellious co-op, full of murals and with a roof known for launching students on acid to their death. Eventually, it would be shut down by the neighborhood, but not before a blacked-out fiber knocked on Karina's bedroom door and asked if she could spend the night. It wasn't romantic. The two had only met once before, and Karina had found her obnoxious. Any chemistry between them was further obscured by Karina's youthful obliviousness to her own sexuality. I identified more or less as a shy person, and that was it. Karina and Fiverr stayed in touch from then on. When Fiverr followed a girl to Tahoe, Karina found she was unable to eat or sleep. And I realized something maybe was afoot in my heart. And I was like, that can't be. That weird freaky chick who's really funny, what? <laughs> they began writing letters. Eventually, Fiverr returned to Berkeley, landing on Karina's doorstep like a puppy who found her way home. She just showed up one day. She had nowhere else to stay. After that, it's moved kind of quickly. Karina and Fiverr's romance sounds like a montage from a lost John Hughes film. We would go into cafes and eat other people's food, like the half cake they left behind. 
I would ride my bike and she would ride her skateboard next to me. We would steal flowers from someone's yard. We didn't have a lot of money, we were poor, but we had such good synergy that it didn't even matter what we did. It could be about taking a walk or reading books or analyzing things into oblivion or painting the kitchen. It didn't really matter. We always wanted to be next to each other. A committed drinker, Fiverr's drug use was occasional and of substances that Karina was hesitantly accepting of, not to say that they were acceptable. She drew the line at harder drugs, and so when Fiverr indulged in those off-limit substances, she did them away from Karina. The romance began to fray. I was trying to get a degree, she says. I was trying to graduate. Her addiction took hold more and more, and I was trying to walk a different path. The lovers split up. Karina went to Europe for a year. She was born in Germany. When she returned a year later, Fiverr was a hag, and her using had become merged with the group's identity. It was more than friends hanging out, Karina says of the scene. There was a lot of fuck shit up energy without fear of the consequences. There was a certain beauty in the recklessness. Still, she worried for Fiverr's safety and missed the bookwormy skate nerd she'd fallen in love with. I feel like there's a certain part of Fiverr that was subsumed. People didn't know she was a writer or that she loved to play her guitar. All that she was left with was this entertaining punk rock hag. The humor she cultivated as a kid as a way of commanding attention in her overrun family became a single note within the druggy group dynamic. My feeling was that I knew who Fiverr was outside of all that posturing. I was wary of it because I saw the results in Fiverr's life. And I thought, what are you doing to yourself? Their contact became increasingly strained, with Fiverr coming to Karina whenever her music spun out of control, and Karina using what few resources she had to try to stanch that downward spiral. 23 years of age, with no understanding of addiction, never mind the means to send her lover to recovery, Karina did what she could. I tried to manage by trying to limit like you do with a child, like it's candy, no more than this. I was trying to control the use. Obviously, that didn't work. Another of Karina's efforts was retrieving Fiverr's guitar, an heirloom inherited from her grandmother each time she pawned it for drugs. I was very committed to being codependent. Eventually, Karina and Fiverr's relationship became untenable, and Fiverr drifted toward a fellow hag who used drugs as heavily as she did. But there was a moment between her initial distrust and her eventual parting when a friendship grew between Karina and the hags, a sort of Wendy among the lost boys. She found Johanna Lee, who had formed an intellectual connection with Fiverr, to be brilliant. She seemed like she could read your mind at points, a psychic person. The way that she spoke, how fast she was, she always reminded me a little bit of Robin Williams when he channels that fast-talking humor. She recalls Quijas, who in so many ways was the heart of the hags, as a little tiny feisty bull. Quijas seemed like good people to me. I liked being around her a lot. She let a homeless Joan of Anarchy sleep in her living room with a similarly homeless girlfriend, in spite of Joan confessing a nightmare in which Karina made her go to a poetry reading. I said, don't worry, I won't do that to you. I'm gonna stop there. Thank you. So we'd like to thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for that fantastic reading. Another round of applause, please. So we're gonna do a couple questions to begin with, and then we're gonna open it up for the audience because we're sure that you guys have uh, lots of questions for Michelle, right? I'm hoping so. Yeah. Um, And since I started with the intro, why don't you start with the questions? So my first question is really simple, especially hearing you read your work, but um, I don't know how you're going to respond to the question. I've read, or read before that you said that you shy away from being called an activist, and I think um, the sheer kind of existence of your work is activism at its, at its heart, in my opinion, right? And so I'm just wondering uh, why you sort of shy away from the, from the label of activist in terms of thinking about that. 
Right, I mean, my activist sensibilities and, and sympathies are really clear in my writing, for sure, right? Mm -hmm. But my writing is ultimately really self-serving. Like, it's a career, right? So I'm trying to get published, I'm trying to make money, I'm trying to, you know, it's just, it's, it's too self-serving for me to feel super comfortable being like, this is activist work, as if, like, I'm done. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like, I wrote my book and uh, I'm done now. I don't really need to get out in the streets and put my body on the line or anything like that and, and because I, I you know I have a history of having done that that's what I was going to say you, you're also yeah. mentioning that you have done activist yes. work so, so that to me is what activism is you right. know and I mean I'm not going to fight anybody who says that my writing is activist I mean it's a huge <laughs> compliment you know but and I, and I think that there are some things that I've written like um, Transmission from Camp Trans mm -hmm. um, that's in against memoir where I went to Camp Trans um, the protest camp outside the Michigan Women's Festival sure. that felt like activism because it felt like that that piece could be used to actually help the act further the cause, you know? So that was an, an instance where I felt like that was a little bit activist and, um, and, I, and I loved that. I was so happy about that. But in general, you know, I feel like my, um, if my writing makes activists feel supported and, and like validated and inspired, that's really cool. But I just don't, I can't say that it's activism for me. I understand. Yeah. Cool. So you also mentioned at least twice in Against Memoir mm -hmm. an appreciation for media that you recognize as having real problems. So first, mm -hmm. the ending of one of your favorite movies, Times Square, mm -hmm. um, and then later, a really shitty track on an otherwise iconic album, Guilty mm -hmm. of Being White. Um, and I was wondering if we just talk with us a bit about what it means to you to like troubling bands, books, songs, shows, etc., both as an audience member and as a writer engaging uh -huh. with those stories? Well, I really believe in that, like, bandied about motto, like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just feel like we're all products of our place and time. Right. All individual creative artists are products of their place and time and, like, have huge blind spots that at the time they probably don't even know they have, which isn't to say people get off the hook for it, you know, like, Ian Mackay doesn't get off the hook for Guilty of Being White. Like, that's such a horrible song, you right. know? Um, and it makes it hard for me. To, like, some things are harder to process than others. Like, that's hard. It makes it hard for me to listen to that album, yeah. um, that song. But um, whereas the ending in, um, in Times Square, which is my favorite movie, it's like the whole of the movie, like, that shitty ending doesn't ruin the whole beauty of the movie to me. Whereas, like, that shitty song on the Minor Threat album sort of ruins the album for me. It's, like, it's just like... It's just a matter of degree, I guess. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, the, whoever the um, the folks behind, I know a little bit of the history of the movie Times Square, which if we haven't seen it, please see it. It's like the greatest movie. And they pushed, you know, that director, writer-director really pushed for that movie to be a lot more overtly queer. And there were queer scenes cut. So I'm sure the idea that like, and at the end of the movie, we're gonna make them run off and live together happily. Like, people were like, they can't do that. They're teenage girls, runaways. We have to, you know. Something else has to happen. So, you know, I try to think about like what was the historical context that art comes out of. You know, like yeah. that's the same way I feel about like Valerie Solanas' Scum Manifesto. Yeah. Like, obviously, there's problems with it. Um, you know, the problems that a lot of people have with it aren't the problems I have with it. Like, I think it's hilarious. You know, I think it's amazing in our culture of misogyny that there's not a lot more Scum Manifestos like yeah. type writing yeah, out sure, there. You yeah, know, sure. so I really value it for the unhinged expression of female humor and rage that it is. And, you know, was she living in the world she was with her limited understanding of gender? 
and, and, and then working with a gender binary that hadn't really been challenged. Like we're so lucky to be living during a time where the gender binary is being challenged like on the level that it is. Like it's incredible, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that Valerie had that, you know? And my guess is that her own self-understanding was probably even limited because of that. You know, so. so actually, that's a great segue, what you're talking about, about Valerie Solanas. Um, early on in Against Memoir, you mentioned her, but I think most people in the audience or maybe in the world know of her as being the person who shot and injured Andy Warhol. Well, it doesn't help that the movie about her is called I Shot Andy Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> right, I agree, I agree, I agree. Right, right. But it seems to me that particularly in your writing that chapter, um, that you're trying to do something that I think you do often in your work, which is bring uh, up the names of people who are forgotten or their stories are uh, mistold sort of to light, right? It sort of actually reminds me of this uh, essay by June Jordan where she talks about Georgia Douglas Johnson and she's sort of mentioning a forgotten name in the Harlem Renaissance era, right? So I'm sort of interested in how much of your work is uh, out there willing to uh, bring names that maybe uh, the stories haven't been told in the adequate nature, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and how much of your work is interested in extolling those sorts of names and especially feminist names and oh my God. of that nature. Well, as it happens, um, yeah, I mean, that is, I'm very passionate about that. Yes. I mean, I, I, I love history. I love yes. your history and yeah. feminist history sure. and the lost histories of subcultures and stuff like that. And um, it's super important to me. And I'm just laughing because there's someone so special in the audience right now. And um, I, don't, I don't know how many of you guys have read Against Memoir, but there's a chapter in it that's called The City to a Young Girl. And it's about, huh? Oh, no, it has the poem. I'm sorry. Yeah, the poem. It was based on the poem. The City to a Young Girl by Jodi Caravaglia, who at the time the poem was written was a 15-year-old high school student in New York, and it is it, it is like the first slam poem. It's like the first feminist slam poem. It's like she's using language, she's using the cunt and tits and ass, and, and it just has all this beautiful rage and swagger, and she's 15, and it's like 1969, and um, the, the way I came across this poem was because um, after the Access Hollywood tapes came out um, with Trump, um, I had to go speak about activist writing at Portland State University, and I felt more discouraged than ever because I knew that that whole thing wasn't going to impact him. And I was reflecting on how in my city, where I grew up, there was uh, this guy had been the mayor, and he was a sexual predator, and everyone knew he was a sexual predator. Hmm. And um, he had been the mayor and the senator, and then later, he just kept getting appointed places, and later he was the um, head of the school committee. And during his time there, um, that poem, The City Two Young Girl, was found in a book in the Chelsea High School Library. And all the old school, old guard Irish Catholic people in Chelsea, I'm from Chelsea, Massachusetts, and it's a shithole, and these people are terrible. And they found the poem, and they did what you would imagine they did. They freaked out. The, this guy, the sexual predator, Andrew Quigley, also owned the city's newspaper, which he used his newspaper the way Trump uses Twitter. So he had a feeling, and he wrote an op-ed, and it got published all over as news, you know? And so, um, I found that, that he had, I was just looking for some, some proof of his sexual predation. Everyone in Chelsea knew about it, it was famous, but because he was so politically connected, there's no record of it. So I couldn't find anything on the internet, but I found this case where he had tried to get this poem banned. And I found the poem, the amazing poem, and I found the author, Jody Caravaglia, and she's sitting right here oh, no. in our audience. Oh. And God, deal to be such a badass at 15 <laughs> but she was and she still is and you know she was like a photographer for Rolling Stone magazine and in her 20s and found out that her poem was being taken to court and 
kind of went, you know, went and showed up for it and stuff. And it's, I love her story so much, and I'm trying to write a screenplay about it right now right with her support, and she's the best. And when I tell the story of, both of this recent story of Michelle and I uh, meeting, when I tell the whole story from the beginning about writing the poem and about how it got published, every, I sprinkle in always, and then it would have lived a lifetime in obscurity uh, if it weren't for. So it's like I wrote the poem, and then it would have lived a lifetime in obscurity if I hadn't sent it in. And again, it was sitting on the bookshelves around in high school libraries, living obscurely until the girl to the parent to the thing and the whole court case. But all of that was in 1978. It was written about. Uh, it's in the decision is in law books, and then it would have lived a lifetime in obscurity if it weren't for Michelle T. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also like oh, thanks. But it's also, I feel like I feel also like if it wasn't for you know X Y Z, if it wasn't for this one moment where I heard my father make a joke about a flasher when I was six and was like, what's a flap? What's a flasher? And remember this guy Andrew Quigley was a flasher, and then. I mean, it is, it's really wild how the, the kismet of it all, but... But this is something about you, as you were saying, how you yes. are kind yes. of like Our yes. Lady of Almost Obscure Causes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so well, I mean, a lot of times I find, um, I get very obsessed with people. Like, I, you know, when I was young, I was a crazy fan. Like, I would, you know, post pictures of, like, Billy Idol above my bed and just listen to the Rebel Yell album on repeat and cry. Just cry, you know, because I was so emotional. So, like, I'm really a, a fanatic about things and about people. I get very moved by art. I get very moved by people's lives and the lives of artists. And sometimes, a lot of times, I'll, you know, I get obsessed with somebody, and they were alive in like the 1800s or something. So it's such a joy to find this poem and get so obsessed. And then there's Jody. I like found her phone number on the internet. <laughs> because I am that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, she is also she's um, a, a prenatal massage therapist, so it's like her work her work line. And she called me right back in this. I was in this cafe in Portland, Oregon, having like an existential crisis, and didn't know what I was going to say to all these students that I'd been brought up to speak to. And then I just told them all about Jody, and it was just amazing. And, and I've only gotten more obsessed <laughs> since then. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Life is crazy, you guys. Cool. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thank you to Outright. Thank you to Michelle for letting us record that. Yeah, super um, thank you to Dave Ring. Yeah, Dave Ring, an organizer at Outright Yay. DC. Um, it's been really great. And so uh, that's going to be the, the lit part of the episode. And now we're going to move into the pop. We're going to talk about pop culture, some of our favorite things. There's so things. much stuff to talk about in pop culture. Yeah, and there always is. It's a time. month. Yeah. <laughs> you know. We're going to do another spin off podcast that's just pop culture. Yeah, no, we're not. No, no we're, we're not. But this podcast, we're not going to talk about politics in the in the pop section. Not really. We're going to try. We'll try not. Really? I don't think today we are. Not yeah, really. this episode. You, this I episode. This whole. Yeah. Generally, we always are. We, we Trump creeps his way some kind of way <laughs> yeah. in one uh, way or another. Just like a creeper creeping his way in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like Quigley, you've talked about earlier. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. So the first thing I noticed, um, something many of us are familiar with, um, Twenty Three and Me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. say. So Twenty Three and Me is a one of those genetics website. Find out where you're from. I spit uh, in one of their containers. What's that? I you spit and you sent them your spit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They have your DNA. Yeah. yeah. So Michelle is among the five million customers of Twenty Three and Me, who had their all that DNA data sold to GlaxoSmithKline, a drug developer, um, for five million dollars. Um, so they have all our data. Um, so we paid them 
uh, to check our DNA. To and scam now they, us. Yeah, to give, we paid them for us to give them our data, our and biometric they, data. Right. And then they sold that again right. to a drug developer. I mean, this is the second. I mean, Facebook is also in the, I mean, you know, in the past for selling. I mean, they, so how, yeah. I mean, it's not, a, it's not about ancestry, but yeah. I'm just saying how comfortable are we um, putting ourselves in the hands of uh, organizations, you know, and especially one talking about ancestry. This is interesting. This is an interesting thought in debate. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 when I signed up for them, so I, one of the things that they do oh. at 23andMe is, like, they will send you, if you want to participate in these surveys, and they ask you questions about your sleep habits, your food habits, like, I had a vocabulary survey the other, like, it's wild, and it's like, if you like taking weird little quizzes about yourself, because you you're self-obsessed, and it's like a really fun little thing to do, but it's like, I know that they're doing something with that information. Oh, you, you, yeah. oh so you yeah. felt I mean, like you yeah. knew. I yeah. mean, of course they are. They're, it's a science company, and mm. they're trying to figure out. They're trying yes, to they crack are. these mysteries of, like, what is genetic, what is not genetic, what, you know. And it's like, there's spooky things that can happen with all this information, and then there's helpful things that can happen. Sure. It's science. So it's like, I don't know, I'm really torn. I guess, you know, I knew, um, I guess I just don't like capitalism. Right. Yeah. And I don't like pharmaceutical <laughs> companies, you right. know? And yeah. so that's the problem. It's not so much that, like, yeah. I don't really care yeah. if, like, other scientists are looking at my, like, DNA. Right. And trying to be like, oh, look at this Polish-French person who yeah. doesn't get any sleep because she's co-sleeping with a three-year-old. You know, like, yeah. looking at my yeah. stuff and figuring something out. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by it. But, um, but yeah, I, I guess I just don't like to think about, like, millionaires making money and off of me yeah you know yeah I'm not worried about like bad science right I'm worried about like my data is being sold I'm not seeing anything from it in this gross capitalist system yeah 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 Yeah. and I mean I guess maybe it's ridiculous to think that they could pay a million people their D. I don't know. I yeah. mean, I just, I don't, yeah. I honestly don't Reparations. know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Ancestry yeah, reparations. Yeah, we tie reparations. Like, reparations. It can be. To 23andMe, to Ancestry.com. Yeah. I mean, you know, reparations. I'm but I'm saying, shouldn't there be consents? I don't know, Michelle, did you sign when when you gave your spit to 23andMe? Oh no, was it, was there a consent? It's like I the Apple consent. You don't read it. Have. You don't exactly. you know, <laughs> You scroll through and the interface. And the way it was worded, it probably wasn't like, is it okay with you if we right. sell your stuff yeah. for five million exactly. dollars to GlaxoSmithKline? Yeah. I've been like, that feels creepy. But right. if they were like, can we use this for scientific research? You probably should. Yes, yes, of course. Right. That's exactly what they said. I was reading right. that article. Yeah. They said the the users all gave consent or did not, but the way it was framed is, do you consent to us? Uh, doing further research yeah, on this information, yeah. and was like, I love research. Right. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a student. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I love research. Yeah, exactly. yeah. you know so, what I mean. I gotta say though, this in the grand scheme of things, like this falls far. This is like way down there, like underneath like war and global warming and like our current our current like hate mongering government and resurgences of white people being empowered to be hideous and you know it's like it's yeah. way down there yeah yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. so like, yeah. like this isn't affecting my life really as much yeah. as like yeah i can go on tomorrow without being wildly affected by this yeah, yeah it's yeah, just like another just little bitter injustice but yeah. i can kind of move, move over it pretty easily yeah. Yeah. right another small stone on the pile yeah, yeah. yeah. totally I mean, yeah yeah all right well you don't feel that offended so i think it's like but i know. mean you know you guys feel free to feel well we didn't no but we didn't we didn't do it class action suit we didn't do it we oh, didn't, you didn't do we it. Have it. No, See, I, I get it. I get it. Right. So we it. want to ask someone who's actually Legit. done it, yeah. and then see how you feel about it. You, you know, know what? Who, you know how Maybe I know mine. Maybe it will sway me from doing it. Though. It I don't might. It might. Prevent people my younger brother it. did it, and my younger oh. brother has the same parents as me. So. So you're like. Oh. Right. So you're never gonna do it. Yeah. Sorry you that yeah. you're like a <laughs> GlaxoSmithKline is cloning you yeah. now. 
yeah. right. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, Justin. I feel like if they clone white people, I'd be a little bit more comfortable with it than if they clone black. People. Yeah. <laughs> can I say that on the podcast? You can say that, but then do we want to want more white people on the planet? Ooh, <laughs> I don't have to get rid ooh, of that's white a people. thought too. Yeah, I don't but then know. you don't want. Yeah, that's bad everywhere. It's so bad. It's bad everywhere. No they're cloning. cloning. They're cloning animals. So I mean, I mean, you know, meat. You're eating lamb meat. That's clone? I, I don't know. Why, why, am I t- why am I talking about this conspiracy because, theory? No, because it's, it's not a conspiracy it's not, theory, right? It's, it's not. real. It's like, you can get, like, like stem cell hamburgers or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. You can. And uh, uh, hamburgers that are real meat, yeah. but not from an animal. Right. Just grown meat. Yeah. Right. That's why. Uh, <laughs> great segue. What's we yours? were not segueing well in this episode at all. all right. We're just like going down the dark slope of badness. I What's going on in pop culture? In your um, yeah, so I'm so I'm always here for Black Girl Magic. So the thing that I wanted to talk about today is three icons are going to be on the covers of magazines uh, this September. Actually, when the issue when this issue is going to be out in September. So yeah, by the time you guys now, yeah. yeah by the time you guys hear that uh, this you should already have in your hands the cover of Vogue is going to be graced by none other than. Uh, Beyonce, who has complete creative control of Vogue. Uh, oh. Tiffany Haddish is going to be on the cover of Glamour in September. And Tracy Ellis Ross, the daughter of Diana Ross, is yeah. going to be on the cover of L. I mean, I'm sorry, of, uh, yes, it's L Canada. Yes, I'm oh, right. Cool. L Canada. Is she Canadian? She's not Canadian. She's American. She's American. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think it. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I don't know. Yeah. I've never seen El Canada actually on a grocery store. But that doesn't matter, people. You should go. <laughs> is it a Canadian this, grocery store? Is it the right? Yeah. Exactly. But this is a, clearly a, I don't know, September, a month of black girl beauty and magic that I'm very happy about. Yeah. But um, Michelle was saying something about the cover. The photographer yes. also who took Beyonce's photo is the first black female photographer for, for Vogue. Who's really? Like Vogue Tyler yeah. Mitchell is wow. the name. Yeah. yeah, 23 years old. Yes, I think yeah. really, really young. And and Beyonce selected her, right. I believe, to do her portrait. That's fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. I love that in, in black communities and queer communities, um, when we get that point of success and right. where... We're putting our hand down, keeping the door open yeah. for young people yes. in particular yeah. um, to really change the culture we have around access, yeah, who's sure. seen, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Beyonce is an innovator and a wonderful lady for doing that, opening the door, using her uh, cultural capital and yeah. real capital. I just yeah. love her. Yeah. I just, if yeah. anyone ever says a bad thing about Beyonce, I want to kill them. You have a I whole... don't say a bad word about Beyonce. Yeah. Like, what you... have you done with your life? You, you have know? a whole nation of people who support you. Yeah, the the Beehive fans. <laughs> Girl, they're out there. They're all now. They're all your books are going up in sales because they're like, she loves Beyonce. Never happened in my career. It's getting on record podcast endorsing Beyonce. And we definitely would not turn her away if she wanted to come here to live pop bang and record with us. I love that you say that every time. You're like, oh yeah, if Beyonce wants to come. I mean, yeah, yeah. no. I mean, people are listening. Who knows who's listening? That's right. They might come to the podcast and record with us. Rama wants to come. I mean, yeah, Fab Five. We're we're still here. We love you all. Uh, Every St. Jonathan Van Ness. I listen to your podcast. Podcast. I'm just here plugging whoever may yeah. be willing to come to my pop For sure. Alright, cool. Yeah. Um, maybe one more. Um, uh, this one I don't think you're going to be that interested in. But it is not. Let's talk okay. about it anyway. Star Trek. Are you watching the new series of Star Trek? I'm Star not. Trek Discovery? I'm not. You should. It's amazing. Okay. First of all, it's the first Star Trek that is fronted by a woman of color. Oh, okay. The cast is one of the most... Uh, body type, racially, diverse. Uh, queer, diverse cast I've seen. Anthony Rapp is a oh, major yeah. character in it, okay. and his character is also an out gay man. Oh, on the show? Uh, yeah, on the show. Oh. Yeah, it's the first major out character on the show. It's I like a know. really, like, 
like a you know the the Star Trek of 2018. It's a real thing. Um, so the new season, uh, the trailer just dropped. It'll be out early 2019. Um, and the trailer's amazing. It teases Spock, who is a major character from another series yep. of Star Trek. Uh, captain Christopher Pike, mm-hmm. who is... Okay, he was the captain of the Enterprise before Kirk. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I, minor know, character, I only know Kirk. Minor character I, I in the series. The big, old, yeah. yeah, I'm not a Trekkie, but... Only other thing I'm excited about with Star Trek, Tignataro is yes. guest starring in a couple episodes. In a strange turn of events, Tignataro yeah. will be on Star Trek. Yeah, how wild is that? <laughs> That's not something I expect to say about no, 2019. It's, it's really a wild cool. world. I feel yeah. like she could like out Spock Spock. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's something kind of Spocky about Tignataro. Mm. Yeah. She's so deadpan. You know? I hope she is a Vulcan or something like that. Like, just let her lean uh, into that role. That'd be she cool. She's going to get to wear the ears. The ears, yeah. Oh, there you guys go. This is the Trek stuff that just weirds me out. The you know, I, I honestly don't no. even watch Star Trek. I, I like the very original one that was the me, TV the show. Yeah, the one. I, I watched yeah. that when I was, like, a yeah, kid, you know? Yeah. And so some of those I thought were kind of fun. And it's fun when they, it's fun to see what outer space looked like. To people in like the 60s and 70s, oh, yeah. like I like that yeah. aspect but of it. But the spaceship shit Retro felt claustrophobic futurism. to me. Like when yeah. I was, I, I was like, this feels claustrophobic. Like, wait, wait, just you know, everybody. Like open concepts. Yeah, spaceship. but the, yeah, but I, <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the fact that they were always filming in that like one yeah, sort like two, of room. Yeah, three corridors. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It felt claustrophobic. I don't know. I mean, I guess I watched I, other shows that were claustrophobic, it's nice when they got, but when they went onto a land, when they yeah, got off the ship, right, exactly, and they exactly. Were with people, you know, right. other people yeah. for other planets and stuff. Right. That was cool. I mean, that's the thing I do. Like, if I can put my trekking hat on now. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) So two things. One, um, the next generation one starring Picard. Uh, Yeah. So that one, it's a whole like show dedicated to like how cool space socialism would be, right? Like it's a cool like post-capitalist vision of the future. I like that. But even better, Deep Space Nine talks about the problem of like wholly believing in like the neoliberal project, right? Mm. It's about colonialism. Right. It's about like right. how an ideal yeah. society Could interacts work. with people right. who they see as not yet at their level right. in complex ways. Right. I'm, I'm here for it. You're here I stand for it. For it. That's I, all right. Talk about it like that. It's like sounds like I'm, the best thing ever. Yeah. What's wrong with me that I'm not watching Star Trek all day, all the time? I mean, Anthony thank you for make, setting that up. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony can make peas sound like cupcakes. I mean, that's part, that's part of what he does. You know what I mean? So great. What are your astrological signs? Oh, uh, I don't know oh. all the extra stuff, but I know that I am a Gemini just after the Taurus cusp. Right. Oh. He's a, yeah. Yeah, I would say well, 24 or 25. 23rd. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. I don't know if you should be. But anyway, yeah, you're a cuspy. You're a cuspy yeah, Gemini. Yeah, after the cusp. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Virgo. Okay, right I'm Virgo, on. super double Virgo. You're just like, let's keep things in order here. Like, yeah, but I have a Gemini. Like, I have so many of these ideas. But I have a Gemini moon, which makes me wild and crazy oh, and jump in cars and take trips. Yeah, <laughs> and do right. all that. It's like why you guys probably mesh well together. Yeah. Right, well, exactly. Now I wonder what your moon is, but you don't know. I don't know. Doesn't know. I, don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I actually don't know what that means. The what. Yeah, you what? have to get your chart. Your done. moon sign. Yeah, you I don't have know. I, tr- I've never done that. I've yeah, I mean stuff. it's easy. You just have to know what time you're born, and then you plug it in. You do it on the internet. Yeah, you do it on the internet, and then you get your whole chart and find out what your planets are and the whole thing. Is that, being. is that helpful for me? Cult. Yes, then you can, right. Exactly. We're coming out. We're, yeah, right. Michelle and I are in a cult together. You can come out with us. Zodiac cult. There yeah. it is. Yeah, it's just it's information. I yeah. find, what about you? Oh, yeah. I, I'm an Aquarius, oh, and yeah, I have a great. Leo rising and a Sagittarius moon. Okay. Whoa. So I do jump in cars. Yes, you yeah. do. That's Sagittarius. You love road trips, right? Jim and I love road trips. Yeah, exactly. But Aquarius, that's, that... The Aquarian explains all of your uh, loving information, yeah. like sucking in information and being able to take it all in, totally. and like, yeah, it's and totally. And rising is how I can stand on a stage and yes. jabber on about it. Of course, I yeah. mean Leos are yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they, you know they prune their 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 fur all the time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. 
Cool. That was our little astrology talk. So I love it. I love it so much. I'm learning about astrology. We've come out like five times today on this this podcast. Everyone's coming out, everybody. (laughs) All right. Welcome back. Okay. So this one's Bang is inspired by a couple of chapters from Michelle's book, Against Memoir. Um, Yeah. So she records a history of this women's like punk graffiti gang, as well as um, some history of Camp Trans outside of Mishfest. Um, and of the Sister Spit poetry tour. Yes. It's this, this, this recalling histories that are at risk of being lost. Queer histories, punk histories, her stories. Um, and I love so much reading and hearing those. Um, so I was going to ask everybody, uh, what's one event or person from history that you wish people knew more about and that you hope that listeners will Google after listening to the podcast. Right, you episode. want people to Google the person after yeah. they get. Yeah, I want course. to say this, and I want readers to be like, "Oh, what is that?" They should be go- <laughs> they should be Googling anyway. This is lip hop yeah. bang, yeah. and we should let our illustrious guest Michelle yeah. T. Michelle, you want to start? Yeah, hey, sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I think that I would say um, Pamela Coleman Smith. She mm-hmm. is the artist who um, did all of the paintings for the Rider Waite tarot deck, which is the sort of classic tarot. Like, if you're thinking of tarot cards right now in your head and and you're not that familiar with tarot, you're like, oh, that's what it looks like, you're probably thinking of one of Pamela Coleman Hmm. Smith's designs. Um, And, you know, she didn't get any real credit for it. Her name's not on the, yeah. you know, it's not I, called the Smith deck. No, nope. you know, it's named Why after it the Rider Waite deck. Uh, it's then? named after the publisher and oh, then the writer really? person who designed it. Yeah, and that. there some people do call it like the Waite Smith deck, but mm. even I get confused when I hear that and I am such a proponent of like getting her attention but it throws me off because I'm like, wait, what is that? Right. But she's um, a fascinating person. She was involved with these sort of Western mystical movements. She was very queer. Um, she was at the very least bisexual. She ended up um, converting to Catholicism, mm. which, as someone who was raised Catholic, I'm like, why would you go backwards like that? Like, you were a witch to buy tarot cards. <laughs> but it made me actually Googling her ah, and thinking about it made words. me... Um, I, I started paying more attention to the way Catholicism was looked at during that time period, mm. and it was yeah. seen as sort of the witchy branch of Christianity in this funny way, because there was the primacy of the Virgin Mary, which is yep. this goddess figure, and yep. the the weird, um, ornate body and blood, and the trans yeah. all that weird stuff, right? So, um, so she's really a fascinating person. That's so cool. And mm. what what time timeline does that time frame? Jeez, I'm so bad with that. Sometime in the 1800s. Okay. Wow. Um, but she was um, um, the um, Arthur Stieglitz who is the artist who had a gallery in New York City, showed her work for the first time, and she wrote him, there's a letter that somebody has somewhere that she wrote him being, oh, I've just undertaken this enormous project, which is the tarot deck, and um, not being paid very well for it. Wow. Yeah, so she knew even then that she was not really getting paid. I mean, it's a big undertaking. It's like 78 discrete pieces of art, you know. And I wonder what our influences were for the art, too. I mean, the art is so interesting and intricate. I'm also reading your book, Modern Tarot. I'm reading reading that now, too, because I also read tarot, but it's kind of undercover. I'm like a closet tarot. Yeah, I didn't know that about you. I I know. I am. Secret witches say. I'm in the broom closet. But your book is is helping me to come out, you know? (laughs) So here I am on the podcast coming out about reading tarot. But anyway, yeah, no, and you have an illustrator in your book, too, who's a different way. Yeah, okay, who's fantastic. Fantastic yeah, as well, fantastic. yeah. I like the illustrations there too. But cool. yeah, like reading that. all about your uh, uh, your iterations about tarot, it's really interesting to me. And how how you feel? It's like a what do you say? A good therapy session is what you yeah, say. Yeah, that's what you get what? out of a good tarot reading. I think it's like a good yeah. therapy session. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It's good, yeah, but it's good to know this woman's name, who I, I would have never yeah, known, who, or, the original yeah. illustrator for the tarot dealer right away. She was influenced by, like, I want to say, maybe Art Deco, but you know something? I'm just going to reveal my deep ignorance to art history if I talk about it, so I'll just stop. I mean, I'm better, not that sure. Yeah. It's a bit better than I know, yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Cool. Cece, you want to jump in? Yeah, so, um, yeah, my, I guess, person that I would like people to go and Google um, is going to be my forthcoming book project that I'm working on, a mid-19th century uh, West Coast civil rights uh, leader. Also, she's an abolitionist. Uh, she's a, a proprietress, I guess you would say. She owned a boarding house where uh, apparently there's rumors that Sex, sex secrets were traded around, and also for you know for businessmen things like that. But her name is Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, her history is uh, pretty obscure. I feel like both in African American history, um, it's convoluted because she's also of mixed race descent. She's not a hundred percent African American, but I still see her as a black figure in history. So I think that's part of why um, she's kind of been erased from history. But um, her work and her abolition work, uh, she helped John Brown um, fund uh, part of his movement that was unsuccessful, but. But uh, she did that. She also funded a lot of uh, legal battles uh, for women in San Francisco. She did that. Uh, There's actually a plaque, um, I'm forgetting the name of the street, uh, that actually commemorates where her house is um, that was in San Francisco. Uh, And I've done, gone to California and done some early research on this project. I'm writing a series of poems. So I'm hoping that after I get done my series of poems, her her name will be more widely known. Oh, for sure. But at the moment, um, there's only like, there's like one autobiography biography by Lynn Hudson. Lynn Hudson did like a, a biography on on her, but that's like kind of the only work that sort of exists about this woman. Um, so I'm hoping that to bring more notoriety to her name. Uh, she's pretty badass. She's a, she's an entrepreneur. Like I said, she's a businesswoman. And they say arguably maybe the first black female millionaire. So that's that so in and cool. of itself, uh, you know, makes her into, I mean, she's before Oprah. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad to say that somebody yeah. before Oprah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone's like, Oprah's it, you know, or Beyonce, you know what I mean? I'm so tired. Of it. So I'm happy to bring someone. I'm the, now the Beyonce fans are going to hunt me down and stab me. We love Beyonce. Anyway, the we beehive. love Beyonce. Exactly. I don't want nothing to do with that. But anyway, um, Mary Ellen Pleasant, I'm hoping to bring her name in uh, to the mouths of more um, African-American people and the world in general. Cool. Yeah. That's, okay. Very That's cool. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you, Anthony? So I feel bad. Yours, your, your, both yours seem so much more sure. Mine's not really obscure, but it's a name that I think should be an everyday name that's not. Okay. And it's Bayard Rustin. Oh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah, we know yeah. Bayard Rustin, but I, 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 he should be in history books. He should be in every yeah. history book, he's right? Not. So, for those who don't know, he's a civil rights uh, era leader. He was a SNCC organizer, of course, a close friend of Dr. King's. Um, you may not know he was a socialist. Um, he was a, an outspoken anti-war activist, and of yes. course, a same gender loving man. Um, and until recently, just like been largely ignored. He's not in the textbooks when yes. we talk about the civil rights era, um, in part because of his queerness, right? Yeah. You um, think you, you, you I absolutely do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the way our textbooks are made in the United States, but also you know, like there's uh, the recorded history do have there's a record of people saying, "Hey, do you think you could step back from the movement yeah. for us? Yeah, um, we don't want." A gay, a gay socialist yeah. being part of this movement. It just, it's a distraction. I agree. And so, yeah, I think his queerness is why he's not an everyday name, like and, Dr. King. And I also think because yeah. of his affiliations with Dr. King and what what might be seen as um, whatever their affiliations were behind closed doors. I mean, we don't know, but yeah, I think yeah. that's also part of the reason why they sort of keep yeah. Bayer Rustin's name like quiet. You know yeah. what I mean? during that era, if you're friends with a gay man, like, that's what there's I'm a whisper saying. thing, right? That's yeah. right. So yeah. the family is probably like, oh, let's keep it on the down low. You yeah. know what I'm yeah. saying? Just 
so it doesn't get out there. I, yeah. call, I have a phrase for this people called uh, historical straight washing. Yeah, this totally. is what, this, this is, yeah. this is yeah. my word that like you know is in the world, and we just don't get the information that yeah. we should have. Yeah, we've talked about it before with yep. a lot of literary figures who were, were not taught. Yeah, people but, not knowing Langston Hughes is gay. Give yeah, me a break. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, my students That's don't a, know. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> wow! I just learned of him as a gay writer. You know? Yeah, yeah, no. exactly. That's just that's just how I learned. No, about it. Yeah, I mean, we talk you about know. that how how especially queer folk like tune into it really early, but yeah, often the mainstream conversation is just like not mentioned, and so just yeah. gets slowly. Lorraine Hansberry. There are all these yeah. people that people just don't talk about at yeah. all. You know, yeah. it's like keep it, especially in the African American community. So I think Bayard Rustin is an interesting one to want to bring forth and hopefully people Google. Yeah, Google it. We'll put it in the yeah. show notes too. There's a, um, a biography of him that like I remember won like a Ooh. Lambda Award some years ago and that's how I learned about him. Oh. And to be honest, whenever I hear his name I always think of that book and that there's really nothing, I, I never really see him mentioned. It's very rare yeah. that I see him mentioned anywhere. Yeah. So yeah, we have, we're, in America book. we have this huge mythology of the civil rights era. Yeah. Right. And he's Excluded well, even, even, mythology. even the movie, movie Selma, right? You, have you seen Selma? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, even Selma. No, I mean, there's like a little tiny mention yeah. of Barry Rustin uh, yeah. in there. You know, it's like even in a movie that's progressive because at least they show uh, some of MLK's, uh, I don't know what word, philandering. Yeah. Look, philandering. Yeah. <laughs> Look is the word I would like to use, but you, they show that they're progressive in one way, but not progressive like in the other way. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's interesting to see what movies and biographies pick up and what they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. That was our episode, our special episode from Outright DC. As always, thanks for listening. This is Anthony. I'm Cece. And this has been Lit. Pop. Bang. 